Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. Just a quick message before the episode begins. If you volunteer to participate in our Coffee Invention Taste Test and Focus Group project, please be sure to get your completed evaluation forms to the Iron Radio intern, Kayla, as soon as possible. I've asked Kayla to pass along the list of anyone who takes a picture of their evaluation sheet and sends it to her so I can offer a little reward and thank you for your effort. We've been fortunate that this invention has actually won a few awards, but we need your feedback in order to move forward with the patent and a preliminary release of the product through gyms and coffee shops. Thanks. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a powerlifter and going to be competitive Highland Games athlete again starting tomorrow. So Wow, tomorrow. So my, my first games in like four and a half years. So okay. See how it goes? Yeah. Doing Very well. Nice. Very nice. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, instructor at Rocky Mountain University, faculty at the Kerrig Institute, and I'm down here in South Padre Island, Texas. Are you dripping with salt water? Uh, kind of. I went out and did my <laughs> meditation and run on the morning real quick before we, <laughs> before we started. Right. So, it's... yeah, kind of. All righty. <laughs> Um, everyone, we're going to follow up last week, uh, when we did some gym talk definitions, I had a verbal, it wasn't so much a mail, but just a verbal comment about, I like the gym talk episodes. Okay. We do too. (laughs) So we're going to do a little bit of news and we'll go to break. Then we're going to continue. Uh, I'm just going to kind of, you know, ask these guys what's their perception, right? Of several gym talk words that we did not cover last week. So just some light listening for you. Uh, Let me start with a little bit of news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, We have been talking about doing an episode on mushrooms, and we're still sort of working on that. It's an interesting whole other category that you don't normally talk about. You know, fruits, vegetables, dairy, all these food groups. But, you know, fungi, that's kind of a weird and different thing. But there was a bit of news about it this week, and then I pulled a science paper to go along with it. But um, this is the uh, the morel of the story by Alicia Harris. It says, it's morel mushroom season in the United States. Uh, plenty of rain and warmth have favored the growth. Uh, but there are also, of course, perilous fungi out there that are plentiful. Poisonous wild mushrooms contain compounds that cause sickness and even death. Some are so toxic that even the cooking fumes can make you sick. Wow. Um, yeah. This mushroom poison is called um, mycetism. Um, let's see. Over 100 species of mushrooms are known to be poisonous. So this is mo- mostly about being careful if you're going to go pick these. Um, one of the people that I wanted to have on in our series of mushroom episodes is a local mushroom harvester. But she knows what she's doing. Anyway, um, mushroom toxins can be categorized based on the primary organ system they attack. So they can be 
toxic in any number of ways. I just thought this might be a good public service announcement. If you do live in the States or somewhere else where it's time to go pick some mushrooms, uh, you want to get some of the unique benefits. And there are some interesting nutrients, right, that um, that mushrooms can provide, things that you don't normally see in the food supply a lot, like if I remember right, chromium and vitamin D and you know things like that. It says neurotoxic mushrooms, though, can cause everything from hallucinations to epilepsy. I think people are familiar with the whole idea of like magic mushrooms. Um, this is this is that idea gone bad, especially bad. Uh, cardiotoxins can cause palpitations. Most poisonous mushrooms contain GI toxins, though, that cause vomiting, diarrhea, and alcohol intolerance. I had not heard that before, but I don't either. Weird. Uh, hepatotoxins and nephrotoxins, of course, so liver and kidney. Uh, so bad that transplant may even be necessary. So we're really not playing games here, you know, when we, we're looking for some of these unique uh, nutrient profile things, but these are, these are um, scary things when done wrong. And it says uh, myotoxins, myo meaning muscle, of course, can lead to rhabdo, rhabdomyolysis. And every once in a while throughout the years, we've talked about that. Nobody wants massive muscle breakdown and blood in their urine and all that kind of mess. Um it says the identifying characteristics of the edible morel mushroom are a hollow stem and a large cone-shaped cap that resembles a sponge or a honeycomb. And they have a video here. This is from, if I didn't mention this, this is uh, labroots.com. So they have a video where you can actually see this sort of thing, which is probably helpful. Uh, but anyway, hollow stem, large conical cap. Uh, it's best to have your mushroom harvest checked by an expert before ingestion. And there are, in fact, plenty of websites where you can get legitimate information, they say, and there's some links here. But again, it says this year's unique spring conditions are ripe for an epic morel harvest. Interesting. So there's that. And then the follow-up paper, this is a paper just from last year about a different kind of mushroom from Lebec and colleagues, uh, International Journal of Medicinal Mushrooms. It's a whole journal dedicated to this. Uh, proximal composition, nutraceutical properties, and acute toxicity of culinary medicinal oyster mushroom powder. Uh, it says a compositional study was performed on fruiting body powder of the culinary medicinal oyster mushroom, Pleurotus ostritus, uh, for applications for nutraceutical and functional foods. So uh, just running down the list here, carbohydrates, um, important micronutrients uh, such as minerals, let's see, Iron, copper, zinc, um, manganese, magnesium, and cobalt, as well as uh, ascorbic acid. Interesting, right? Um, and non-nutrients, that is phenolics, that have antioxidant potential. It says they have an in vitro digestibility of 75%. So relatively digestible. I'm not sure how they do that in vitro. Probably just... Um, yeah. I've seen... Yeah, I've seen machines, yeah, like mechanical digestive systems where, you know, it, it puts it in an acidic environment and then a more basic environment and then enzymes are applied. Um, maybe it's something along those lines. Uh, it says an acute toxicity test proved that Pleurotus powder, again, oyster mushroom powder, was safe after oral administration to both male and female mice all the way up to 2,000 milligrams per kg. So not, not very toxic. <laughs> um, mm. The combination of rich nutritional composition bioactivity and safety in P. ostritus fruiting body powder highlight its potential as a nutraceutical agent promoting health and life quality. So again, L-E-B-E-Q-U-E, Lebec and colleagues, 
International Journal of Medicinal Mushrooms. That was uh, from 2018. So it's not this month, but it's still pretty new. All right, so I thought a little bit of um, mushroom stuff in the news, especially because we haven't been able to cover that much. Um, Phil, you said you saw some stuff on on our Facebook page? or Yeah, I just figured I would give this a shout-out because I don't think it's getting much play. Um, but one of the listeners, I'm going to butcher your name, but I'm going to give it my best shot, Andrej Miokovic. He is from Honolulu. And his wife and him are lifters. She's an NPC physique competitor. Cool. And uh, he's more into strength training. And he's also a studio musician, musician with different genres, mostly metal and hardcore. Nice. But started, but started dabbling Good in choice. writing music uh, for posing routines. So he's been making custom posing music for his wife. And he's thinking about making some demos, demos and distributing them for free, pro bono, to just get his work out there. So uh, he makes 90-second tracks that loop four to five times so it can be rehearsed. If anybody's interested, please let him know. He said, I'll get you a demo CD. So That's awesome. If we have any competitors out there that want some free, fresh music that nobody else is using, that's composed by an actual musician, go on the Facebook page and drop them a line. I love it because obviously we've all been to bodybuilding shows where the music, you're like, oh, dude, like amateurish you know, or badly done or you hear the same pop music kind of pump up the volume, you know, stuff. You're like, please, can somebody have something different, you know? I used to, in fact, yeah. our, we had an episode, uh, a psych-up episode years ago, and I put a, at the end of it a clip of my posing music, and it was sort of a, I think it was a mishmash of uh, Guns N' Roses and, you know, um, Conan soundtrack or something. But it'd be nice to have somebody who was a pro, you know, actually yeah. really good at it. It's the worst to see someone put that much time and effort into everything, and then the music is just, it just Gosh. makes it hard to watch sometimes, especially when that's something you have 100% control over, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. At least, well, I wonder if they still use CDs. Like, we used to have to take CDs with us, you know, and now it, I, am, I would almost think they would just take it on a, on a thumb drive, like a USB yeah, drive, probably. you know, just be easier and not scratch it up. Yeah. Um, Miguel, do you have something? Yeah, I had a cool study here. At least it was very cool to me. <laughs> um, a brand new uh, 2019, literally just came out a couple days ago, called uh, Ecological and Environmental Consequences of Metabolic Rate Plasticity in Response to Environmental Change. So lead author here is Tommy Norin, N-O-R-I-N. So I've been kind of interested in the last probably three years on just metabolic flexibility. Obviously, I've been doing that for over a decade, but also physiologic flexibility, which we've talked about on this show a little bit. Yeah. Um, Especially looking at things that challenge homeostasis. And this was a really cool review. Again, this is not necessarily in humans. This is more comparative anatomy across uh, different animals. Uh, but what they're looking at here was the cause of interspecies and specific phenotype variations at the organ, tissue, and mitochondrial levels. So they're looking at, uh, they said, different predictability in the flexibility of their metabolic rate and to the extent to which they can suppress the minimal metabolism when food is limited, but increase the capacity for aerobic metabolism when a high work rate is beneficial. And I've been fascinated with this, too, because if you look at what the end goal of what somebody 
comes to us and probably wants to do. Obviously, performance is a big part of that. But I would say from body composition, they want to be at whatever they consider a good body composition, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the definitions later in the program today. But they don't want to sit there and count and weigh their broccoli and you know try to be micromanaging everything to the greatest degree. So I've been fascinated by <clears throat> can you train your body to be more responsive to the environment since most of us can't really control our environment as much as what we would like to, nor should we. So if you eat a large meal, can you dispose of that in a better, more healthy way? Does maybe your metabolic rate possibly hop up, like in terms of NEAT and things like that, just get some of the studies from Levine and caloric overfeeding. Um, but again, this is an animal study, but I thought it was super interesting how that other animals are pretty able to do this much to a larger extent than humans. Um, they go into what are some of the possible mechanisms and things of that nature. So what about your take on getting swole and, you know, applying, yeah, that, so a, applying that and, you know, yourself or, you know, that whatever. Yeah. So the data we have in humans would say that if you're more metabolically flexible, they did a super cool study where they gave subjects, uh, they took trained and untrained people. They gave them an oral glucose tolerance test, right? So about 80 grams of dextrose. And they also combined it with uh, interlipid. So they gave them another IV of basically fat at the same time. Mm -hmm. So now you kind of created a metabolic train wreck, right? So tons of glucose, super high insulin, super high levels of fat. Right? Kind of like you went to your local buffet and stayed there for a couple hours. Exactly, yep. And what they show basically on metabolic markers is if you were trained, you could deal with that sort of onslaught much better without having insulin go completely crazy, without having your whole systems kind of go awry. So I think that, you know, things like exercise and things of that nature we know are helpful, sleep, um, but maybe other environmental regulators, maybe a certain exposure to heat, maybe a sauna, maybe exposure to cold, maybe those things can also potentially help us be better regulators of these kind of variable inputs that we we do on occasion. Yeah, we have touched on, kind of danced around this topic quite a few times. It, it feels like when you apply a training or even certain nutritional stressors, like a lot of our listeners do, it's just, you, you could just take all comers, you know, it just, things yeah. don't shock you. I think it's, it's almost like the hormonal response, you know, like we teach in like basic ex-phys class that, you know, if anything, there's almost a blunted hormonal response across the board. Like there's not a lot of epinephrine and GH and cortisol and all this like rush because your body's like, oh, I'm just lifting again, you know, or more stress, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know. <laughs> Making it more, more resilient and I would say even more anti-fragile, right? So resilient would be for listeners like a... A rubber cup, if you drop it on the floor, it'll kind of bounce around and it doesn't really shatter like a ceramic one. But if you're anti-fragile, which is from Nason Talib, then as you take on more stressors, you not only become resilient, but you actually become better. Right? Your body can handle a bigger stressor next time. So living systems are kind of one of the only things that can really become anti-fragile over time. Right. Spoken like an engineer. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting, right? Because you can kind of talk about the human body and its limitations, but like a car engine isn't going to adapt, you know, 
right. you, it's not remodeling constantly. You know, it's 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 mm-hmm. a neat concept for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, we're going to go to break because we have quite a few words that I'm going to bounce off these guys, uh, and it, hopefully it's entertaining or maybe even informative. So we'll be back in a little bit. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we are, we're just going to kind of shoot the shit with some gym talk type definitions. Um, we've already covered a little bit of the, the science side of things, so if you don't like gym talk, then turn us off now because we're just going to offer some of our own thoughts. And it's not like it's useless because we're not reading studies, of course. This is experiential stuff, right? I mean, we're going to have certain opinions on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, let's start with you, because uh, I think this de- de- definition is going to differ quite a bit between bodybuilders and powerlifters, but what about uh, the word lean? When you Lean. Yeah, if you're going to define someone as lean. Oh, God. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to be different than, than like a show-ready bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just, as, I, I mean, if you're lean, you've got a good deal of, of – uh, Muscle definition going on, things like that, and you know, veins start popping out. 
it's uh I, honestly i think we use too lean more often than we use man you're looking lean it's like bro you're getting too lean you're gonna get weak <laughs> it's bad <laughs> yeah that's why the injuries are coming off you know, you're getting lean you're gonna get injured um because that's it really happens you know you see that a lot when competitors try and stay too lean when they're getting heavy or when they're when they're lifting heavy yeah so and it's kind of the opposite what you see in powerlifting then it's it's changed recently but it used to be like powerlifters were the leanest in the off season. Yeah. They were Indoors. bigger on the platform. You know, they right. eat up for their meats. And yeah. now there's this big change of like everybody's fighting to stay in lightweight classes and it's like uh, just a bit different. But um I don't know. I mean you got some muscle definition going on. You look more like an athlete. Uh, okay. you know, it, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Athletic lean. Right. Yeah, which so, is not bodybuilder lean, right? No, for sure. You, know, you just yeah, it's like, bro, you're looking pretty lean, looking good. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's uh, you know, you look like a freaking uh, an NFL linebacker or something. Well, you so. mentioned injuries. Why do you think it is that when people are lean, they get hurt more? Because I mean, from a body composition perspective, it wouldn't seem that body fat is is critical to preventing injury, but it that does seem to be true, right? What you're saying, yeah, yeah. experientially. I mean, I think it's just a less. There's less there's less fluid going around joints. There's you know, and just the productiveness of, like we all talk about. I mean, when I eat up, there's just more of me. There's more tissue around a joint. Yeah, which yeah. is in a, in and of itself protective. You know, in the squat and everything else. <clears throat> so the more tissue you have, the the, the stronger you're going to be. But uh, mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of it might might stem down to. I'm not a scientist or anything. A lot of joint hydration and things like that. Usually, when your people are leaner, they're just uh, there's not as not as much that you know your joints start to hurt more. Um, where somebody's eating up, you tend to feel a little bit better. Yeah. So. Yeah, Mike. What do you think anatomically, or I mean, you've done a lot of cadaver dissections and everything. Yeah. I mean, why do you think that extra body fat seems to be safer and create more strength and and more injury resistance and like versus leanness, like what's going on there? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really entirely sure. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and having done <laughs> a bunch of different fresh tissue cadaver dissections for many different times. The one thing that's still surprising, I did it again in January for five days, is there is fat everywhere in the body, right? And it's one of those things where you say that and people are like, oh, well, no, duh, I know that. But when you do an actual dissection like we had a, a cadaver who had a little bit more fat on them like the different layers of fascia that'll be between layers of fat right because you have to have some structure to fat especially abdominal type fat um that was fascinating to see how it was organized in like these kind of sheets and different layers hmm. and even just around you know all the organs all the other space and even on the leaner cadavers, we've seen the same thing. So I'm not sure how much of a difference there is. But especially with squatting and things of that nature, I've often wondered about just visceral pressure, right? Organ mm-hmm. pressure. That if you've got more sort of fat on the outside, then you go down into a compression-based movement, especially at the bottom of the squat, right? Because pretty much <clears throat> across the board, lifters are like, oh, yeah, when I lose weight, like the bottom of my squat feels horrible. And maybe it's because there's just like those saying less, there's more space now at the bottom, so to speak. Or maybe the inner abdominal, that whole pressure of that cavity is better when you've got a little bit more fat. I, Yeah, I don't know. And I know Eric Helms has talked recently about bench press is the other one you'd normally see go mm-hmm. down. 
which I've definitely seen go down. Mm-hmm. And his thought was, which I would agree with, is pretty unique, is, well, maybe you're losing some fat off of your glutes and other areas so that your leverage is physically changing, mm-hmm. right? So that the position you're in is now a little bit different because of the points you're trying to push off of that you weren't before. So maybe there's something like that going on too. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things where, uh, at least as far as what I've read, science is going to have to play a little catch-up with what, what lifters yeah. probably already know. I mean, gosh, yes. I mean, how many times do you hear, I felt this myself, you get down under 6% fat, like getting ready for a competition and mm. bodybuilding, and nagging injuries start coming out of nowhere. You're like, what's that? Um, but your your point, both you guys, about extra tissue and how that tissue is organized, you know, in sheets and with fascia and their structure – it's not like body fat is just jello, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah so there's maybe yeah. some membranous stuff happening. Just, we've talked about before, when you gain fat, it's you don't gain 100% triglyceride. You know, when people no. get quote-unquote fat, they put on all kinds of mass. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it's just got to be advantageous. Yeah. The other part I wonder, too, real quick, is that if, if you're used to walking around as a bigger mammal, and <clears throat> say you're 30 pounds heavier, your body, your proprioceptive, your nervous system has to map where all that tissue is in space. And I wonder how much of it is a a learning system, almost like you're learning to lift in a slightly different body, right? Like how long does it take for your body to kind of remap the new space, especially when you've got how many thousands of reps under a bar at, you know, X weight kind of looking like that person. Now you drop weight, let's say even relatively fast, you have less reps in that body in that nervous system knowing where all your joints are in space too mm-hmm. well i can tell you in the squat like when i was up to 293 it's like basically i just sit my belly between my legs <laughs> <laughs> there's that yeah I, I just feel strong you know and there's literally i mean at some point you're there's tissue pushing tissue yeah you know and but oh i just feel so much better but I think wasn't it was it Fred Hatfield uh, said that like I'd have a belly and and when I'm down in the hole in the squat I I push off the belly you know like literally physically you know well just wearing a belt like I wear a belt looser when I was heavy I get it on too tight Mm. it's not comfortable because the minute I start going down if it's it gets tight (laughs) and if it's too tight it 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 caves my back in so Mm. Mm. uh, yeah. So yeah, you got to adjust for that, and yeah, but okay. Oh. Uh, there's 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 no skinny champions. You know, that's, <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, it's still like the biggest great. weights ever lifted. <laughs> you know, they're not by 120 pound people. No. So. Yeah. What about the the flip side of this, uh, which is out of shape? Like in bodybuilding, when you hear Arnold or somebody like you know from the old days, they're they're like. Oh, everybody's in shape. They mean everybody's lean, essentially, right? They're they're carrying their usual amount of muscle mass, but they're they're sharp. Their body fat is down around, I don't know, four percent, something like that. Really, really lean. Those old school guys might have been more like four to six percent. I'm just totally guessing here. Um, but out of shape, I'm sure doesn't mean leanness in powerlifting. No. So what and do you mean? I mean, it's, we're talking like all these things, like everything we're going to touch on is context dependent. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as far as powerlifting goes, it's just you're not in shape enough to finish the workout. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If, if people don't understand that there's a sh- certain amount of conditioning you need to have just to go through a grueling workout. So and keep rolling through it. So, 
like aerobic like base just, kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some kind of aerobic base that feeds into and all this anaerobic work we do. You know, if we're going to do set after set of this stuff, you see a lot of people and okay, we're doing six heavy sets and they're on number two and they're like, dude, I'm done. <laughs> and, uh, so it, it takes time to build that up. You know, that tolerance to, to just working hard mm-hmm. in, a, in a heavy range for a long period of time. And then all the assistance work, we go, okay, now we're done with those. Now we need to do 100 of these and 75 of these. And what? You know? Yeah, no, yeah, for so sure. That, that would be out of shape. I mean, I, I think it's underappreciated how I've never met a many uh, high-level lifters that are just – they're, that aren't in, they're in horrible shape as far as you know they've got a good work ethic and they they all work hard so I think that's the kind of thing that would surprise the late like gen pop person if they look at some of these really big boy over fat power lifters mm-hmm. when they would assume that they're out of shape and they're yes. from that from your perspective right there they are very much not oh yeah right yeah and the difference is I think is that uh, like I know when I'm like I'm very good at I can go really hard and then give me some rest time and then I can go really hard. You know, there's a difference in it, you know, in the type of shape. Like we're not very good at pure aerobic work, but we'll go harder than you. And and then then give me give me two minutes rest and I'll go just as hard again. You know, yeah. type of thing because we're very used to that. We've conditioned our bodies for that. Right, those energy systems and you know, yeah. The, the average person, you know, could, you know, they can go in a nominal pace for a long period of time. So, right. uh, but we do that stuff too. It's like, okay, just drag the sled. If you can't, I mean, if anybody can't just drag a sled, you should probably just do that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, true. Oh so, yeah. And, uh, you know, that they, they talked about that. I don't remember who it was. It was Dave Tater, Jim Winner, or somebody had the, you know, when you first join Westside, what do you do? Yeah. And literally like the first month you're just dragging a sled. That's it. Like the whole time they're training, you're dragging a sled. Yeah, and, uh, conditioning phase, kind of, you yeah. know. And then you earn your way into the gym. So yeah, but in fact, that's I'm out of shape by that stand. Like my tolerance to volume is is not good right now. Yeah. You know, and I just need to that general conditioning stuff. You know, for sure. Oh yeah, no, and I talk I talk about this all the time. Like when I'm when I'm ready for a meet, it's like, oh man, I feel out of shape. I'm very in shape for the beat I'm about to do. Right, strong. Yeah. When I'm talking general context, it's like, oh man, (laughs) those stairs are tough. Those stairs, (laughs) (laughs) you know, type of thing. Totally. So there's difference between general and then your context uh, that you're that you're going for. Sure. What about you, Mike? I mean, maybe you can provide a different population to put it in a different context, or however you want to do that. If you were to say, "Dude, I'm going to be honest with you, you're out of shape." What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I tend to think of, you know, especially working with a little bit more kind of CrossFit people, obstacle course racers, you know, kind of mixed modality, a few strongman, a couple power lifters. Um, I think I always think of more on the metabolic side. And, I mean, obviously it could be either way. It could be body comp, which we'll talk about. But my first thought is what is kind of your aerobic level of fitness, right? Because it's pretty easy to measure your performance on lifts, right? You can do a one rep max or a three to five rep max. That's pretty easy to get at. But it starts getting a lot fuzzier when you start talking about energy systems and what fuel you're using, what intensity, what rate. So in general, I have a a whole thing that I do now, which is based off some work from Dr. Kenneth J when he did the the carrot course on this. But it's basically just metabolically profiling an athlete. It takes about a week 
you know, everything from, you know, 100 meters on the rower, which is like super hard all out to, you know, 30 second wind gates, 60 second wind gates, 180 second wind gates, oh. right? So how long can you get up to lactic acid, like your peak lactic acid, right? So lactate and hydrogen ions levels, which is about 60 seconds. And then how well can you hold that now for two minutes? <laughs> that's, that's not <laughs> fun. <laughs> it is utterly freaking miserable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, you know, and all the way down to a 2K, which will give you a pretty good idea of your uh, VO2 max to uh, a 20-minute test for more, I'd say, classic aerobic capacity, right? So where's your heart rate at? More specifically, how far can you get in 20 minutes? Um, so this is done mostly on a rower. Um, so I think there's different ways you can classify that, right? If you're running, you can do a Cooper run test. So how far can you run in 12 minutes? Um, but I like having actual numbers and ways to calculate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on more or less performance. And there's a lot of backup data that goes into that. Uh, you can look and see comparatives and norms and everything else. And then when you retest athletes, you can see, okay, well, you did get better. We did, let's do a block of aerobic capacity work, which is normally where I have people start. And, oh, wow, you actually did better on that. Cool. Or if I look at their profile, I'm like, oh, yeah, your aerobic capacity is great, but, wow, your ability to generate power repeatedly, or especially in a lactate area, really sucks. Right, so it kind of gives you a specific way to target those systems, especially if you don't have a metabolic heart or you have any you know other fancy equipment to look at. Oh, right, field tests and whatnot. Just right. adding numbers, because then you could say you're ten percent, quote unquote, better. You know, yeah, your, your exactly. times. Just quantifying the magnitude instead of thinking, yeah, I think you're in in better condition. I mean, imagine if we tried to apply that to nutrition. You know, yeah, <laughs> I think I ate more protein today. Wow, you know, people want numbers. So, for sure. Yeah. And you can look at byproducts of that, like heart rate variability, resting heart rate. And, you know, it's hard when you're even strongmen. Like, you're doing with sports where, yeah, the CrossFit, there's some known things you're going to do. But a lot of it's unknown or different than what you did before. You know, so, yeah, you need some specific stuff. But I think just having a really good general base of numbers that you think is probably going to transfer to your sport, I think, as a just baseline is really good to know mm-hmm, for sure okay um phil back to you w- what about the word intense i think this gets mm. a lot of interpretation from different people but in your gym right when you're like bro intense i mean or <laughs> yeah. or you know that sort of thing how would you define that <sighs> intense would be like chuck vogelpole or something like that <laughs> <laughs> that's a crazy <laughs> smashing your head against the barbell before you squat it, bleeding all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, uh, the word intense. Uh, a lot of times you can just feel it coming off a person. You know, that's what they talked about. Like, like we'll talk about Ed Cohn again. When Cohn was coming up, you could he wasn't yelling or anything, but you could just see there was an internal fire just burning. Mm-hmm. You know, so and that's that's the intensity. Bring intensity to to your workout and just. Uh, and you'll see it in in good lifters, like yeah, the warm ups and things. They're taking them serious, but it's it's different. And then once it starts getting into the heavy range, something turns on, and it's like okay, the intensity's coming up now. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they know when it's time to turn that on, and you flip this switch, and it's it's all training. That's all this is about. So, um, and the whole workout's that way. I mean, people take it like a job. You know, it's not just a joke. You know, you're coming in here to do some training, and you know we're gonna we're gonna push this thing to the envelope. And even if it's you know a fairly easy weight, let's say we're working with seventy percent, you're 
<clears throat> you're pushing the intensity up and you're crushing workouts. So yeah. that, that would be intense. And then, like we talked about, then you can talk about intensity. And that's more uh, the, the load on the bar. You know, right. Yeah. Compared to what you can do. Like, okay, we're going to 95%. That's high intensity. <laughs> exactly right. Like, yeah, quantified, quantified like that. So, yeah, what you said earlier made me maybe think about like how Arnold used to be like, "Let's get serious." You know, there's a seriousness that you have to turn on. You could joke between yeah. sets, and then, you know, if it's if it's a, if it's time to get serious, you, you know, you have to get mentally intense. I guess. Yeah, and you'll see that. I mean, in the best lifters I've seen, it's something that can literally just be turned on like a switch. Yeah. Like, they turn on, and then the minute that, like, they're coming to the platform, okay, it's time to turn on, and the minute that rep's over, it's off. Yeah. Because you can't stay up, and the guys that you see stay up all day, try to, crash, crash hard, and then they're done. You know, so you've mm-hmm. got to be able to, you got to be able to control that and turn it on, turn it off, because you can't stay that amped for a long period of time. So, I think Mark Bell had, had a podcast the other day, and they talked about this, and like, it's usually most the most times you should push it to that level at like a meet. It's like your thirds. Bring your thirds, maybe a second here and there if your opener didn't go well, but you can't bring it to that full on. You know, I'm going to kill something intensity for nine lifts in one day. You know, if you're having to get to that point for your opener, your opener should be pretty lackadaisical. You know, because you've done it a hundred times, so you just kind of go out there and hit it, and it's like, hey, this next one's a little more serious. Yeah. And then that third one is when you turn it on, you know, and you just go 100% focus. Okay. Yeah. Get everything you got, you know. The adrenal glands are just pumping. So right. Yeah. <laughs> working overtime. So. Yeah, I, that's got to be a real skill. I mean, I think what athletes can do, you know, again, I, I don't know why I keep referring to Arnold today, but he's talking about, like, I can just increase blood flow to a body part just by thinking about it and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I mean, I think you can almost – I mean, obviously, there's a neuroendocrine axis, you know, and you're not just victimized by, I hope my adrenaline kicks in. Mm-hmm. You get used to almost like flipping a switch and yeah, you you know, turning it on. You and know? I've been thinking about it a lot lately and like, how do I do that? Because I know I do it. Right. And yeah. I've just been trying to be cognitive about what do I do to do that? And for me, it's like a lot of nasal breathing. I don't know why, but it's like in through the nose, out through the mouth, um, big breaths. And then all of a sudden you can like, you can feel it. The hair starts standing up on all your arms and on their back and, you know, right. Yeah. And it's like, here it comes. You're starting to be like sensory overload. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And I think like the ability to do those transitions is huge. Right. Cause like you were saying, you see newer lifters, they, they kind of get stuck in this moderate intensity the mm-hmm. whole time. And they can't go a little bit higher and they definitely can't go any lower. Yes. If it's an early meet and you haven't done it that much, you've got all the nerves of the competition in a different place and 800 other things going on, too. Yeah. Um, you know, all the people I've looked at over the years and, you know, that they're all the same. And I know, Lonnie, you mentioned it, too. It's like, okay, they may be very jovial, kind of joking around, but when they get under the bar, it's it's go time. Like, they might mm-hmm. not be super amped up, but they're super focused on what they're yeah. doing. And the yep. second the bar gets racked, they're like, hey, I heard this one joke about whatever, you know. Yep. Some guys yep. aren't like that. You know, they're just kind of all in the zone the whole time. But just I always thought it's fascinating, that ability to transition when you need to. Mm-hmm. And that, that probably protects your longevity, too, and performance. Yeah. 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 It's interesting how people manifest intensity like that. Like there's yeah. the there's the 
almost an extrovert introvert spectrum. You know, the extrovert's going to pound his head against the wall and scream mm-hmm. and bleed through his nose, and the introvert's just going to smolder. And those people yeah. are almost scarier to me. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but and that's what I, I think my people at my place they just know by my body language when the fuck to leave me alone. Yeah. It's like <laughs> don't go even talk to him, you know, because right. he's getting ready. And I, you know, I kind of put myself by myself. I don't want. I don't need somebody yelling at me and things like that. I'm in my own head, and I don't know. It's kind of going mindless, like we've talked about a lot. You, you're not thinking about. I'm not thinking like, okay, push you got push your knees out, do this, do that. No, it's like, it's 100 percent just I'm going to kill this thing. And it's when you go into the bar, you're not think I'm not thinking cues at all. Right. It's just I'm thinking, okay, here we go. I'm going to cry. And it's almost going mindless. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just doing the job at hand that I've done a thousand times. I just got to do it again. Let your body do it. Yeah. Do it really hard. <laughs> you know? Right. Unconscious so, competence, right? And yes. If you try to make yourself conscious during that spot, a lot of people just screw it up. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. It's like that old that old quote about when under duress, we revert to our training kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In kendo, there's a term called zanshin, which is you're so aware of yourself and your opponent that you're not thinking about what he's going to do next. It's almost like you just move to intercept, like almost like you're controlling both bodies. You know what I mean? It sounds a little bit esoteric maybe, but it's that same kind of idea that you're not thinking about it. You're just allowing your body to do it, like do what it knows how to do. Okay, um, next. This is a fun term. Old school. So... (laughs) We're going to show our age on this one probably, but Phil, when you when you hear the term old school, what do you think of? Sadly, I'm becoming old school. It's it's crazy. <laughs> yourself. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. Yourself. <laughs> we were at the gym the other day, and like somebody was like, play some of that old school music from like 2005. I'm like, oh, God. What? <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, oh, kids. <laughs> oh, I'm old. So freaking old. Um I don't know. I mean, it can be it can mean different things. Like in an old school gym is just very. Uh, I don't know. It might be something like you see. I'm in an old warehouse cave type of gym. You know where yeah. an old school lifter is. To me, it's just no BS, man. Right. The, yeah. Uh, the fluff's gone. It's yeah. just it's just all bare bones and very fundamental. So. That's what I think of too. No nonsense. Maybe a little rust uh, in the core on the you know like, like an old piece of Nautilus equipment. Like look at that stuff. I mean I know people are often down on machines, but if you look at some of those old you know the styling is old. Like my gym has some old hammer strength equipment, and you know the 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 plates are a little rusty, not disgustingly so, but you know, and it's very no nonsense. It's about the yeah. work, not the fancy flash, yep. you know, kind of thing, but. Uh, Those old school gyms you walk into and you kind of wonder if you're going to get a venereal disease. (laughs) (laughs) Venereal Uh, disease. Yeah, uh, like, oh, I squat. How do you get syphilis? I was squatting. uh, Squatting. (laughs) One place I I won't say their name, but they had a a pull-up bar and the ceilings were too low. So they cut a hole out of the ceiling so you could do your chin-ups and pull-ups over in the corner there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, see, that, no bullshit, right? Just yeah. <laughs> make it happen. Need a hole in the ceiling? <laughs> uh, what thoughts come to your mind, Mike? You're, you're not a spring chicken either. Yeah, yeah, I'm 44. So, I mean, I guess kind of like Phil, I think of just, just old school, bare bones, basic, kind of 
guess you could say classic exercises, but I mean, my brain also goes to what are all the lifts that, you know, lifters used to do in the 40s and the 50s, and even before in like the performing vaudeville days in the 20s and 30s of just kind of all the old kind of really basic stuff that I think a lot of times we tend to forget. You know, like you go to a gym and you do like a, a zercher lift off the floor and they look at you like you're a space alien. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, well, remember, there used to not be power racks. They're like, what are you talking about? You know, God forbid you walk in and do a Steinborn lift, they'll like kick you out of the gym, you know, and <laughs> there's a good reason we have power racks now. I'm not saying everyone should do a lot of heavy loaded um, Steinborn type stuff, but even like a kettlebell windmill, it's like, oh my God, rotation, you're going to destroy mm-hmm. your spine, you know, but these used to be very common lifts. Again, you need to prepare for them and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but and I think old school, that's, that's kind of what I, I think about, just kind of old, kind of very classic type heavy lifts. Yeah. Yeah. I think about back in the day when, like, um, you know, there was almost this mentality. It's not a mindset. Like, bodybuilders were also performed strength events. You know, the oh, same totally. same day, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Or I think about, I think it was Bill Pearl, wasn't it? He, somebody made a comment about kettlebells. And, yes, of course, they have their application, right? Uh, but he's like... We got away from kettlebells now because this is super old school. We got away from that because dumbbells work better. (laughs) (laughs) Dumbbells were a technological advancement, so we stopped using kettlebells. Yeah, yeah, they were back in that time, right? If you go back far enough, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then you can go to like supplements and just start thinking old school. I think like desiccated liver tabs. Yes, liver tabs. (laughs) Totally stuff like that. (sighs) Proteins that taste like rotten cheese. Oh. <laughs> right, give you terrible gas. <laughs> yeah, they're just yeah. milk powder. <laughs> yeah. I have a very hard time when someone reports back that oh, this protein tasted bad, oh, and okay. it's a very you know manufactured one. I'm thinking, oh god, back in the '90s, I remember having Joe Eater egg powder, oh yeah, unflavored, and it was like you might as well try to mix and drink chalk. It was oh, yeah. horrible. <laughs> There were some casing concoctions that would just create a like plastic paste in your mouth, yeah. and you're like, oh, I, oh, yeah. I can barely choke this down. You, you put tiles up in your shower with it. <laughs> <laughs> a blender doesn't even do it. It's like, oh, oh, right. oh it'll burn it up. <laughs> <laughs> Grout your shower. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, how about this one? And I, I'm sure we've had whole episodes on this. I know we have, but uh, Big Eats, Phil. What's what are big eats to you? Oh man, it's <laughs> just like uh, for the crowd I run in. I mean, it, it's multiple entrees. You yeah, know, if you're yeah. not rocking multiple entrees, you're not eating big, right. um, type of thing. So uh, I don't know. It's like the other day, people I showed up and was like at the gym just for the hell of it, and I, was, I brought like six pizzas, brownies, and soda. And I was like, let's eat. You know, they're like, what? It's like, yeah, I was hungry. So I figured everybody else was. You know, Phil, that's like Planet Fitness, except you have yeah. a, a, a an excuse to yeah. do it. You know, we're not going to serve donuts and pizza when you walk in, but you're you're eating that with purpose, you know. Yeah, so all the kids are like, all the kids are knocking out sets of squats and in between them grabbing a piece of pizza. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's... That's what I think about. I mean, it's it's just caloric overload, almost totally. disgustingly. So yeah, uh, I remember, uh, and I've seen this, and I know Fortress has, like the Firehouse Cafe in Venice, in California. Oh, yeah. Like Gary Stridum 
would sit down and eat a turkey. Like a family oh. turkey <laughs> with a bucket of vegetables, and you're just like, you know, I'm here's me thinking I can eat a, a lot. No, <laughs> N- not compared to the pros. Uh, like obviously, there's you know, there's. I'm not saying he's on anything, <laughs> wink, wink. But uh. <laughs> I mean, when you when you hear these guys say every, you know, why would I eat clean when every gram of everything becomes muscle tissue? You know, when you're talking about yeah. growth hormone use and all this stuff and. But to watch the sheer – it may really made me think all that GH and all that sort of thing. It's not just about muscle hypertrophy. I really think – I mean, the gut is a use-it-or-lose-it organ system. And if it can mm-hmm. atrophy, yeah. you could probably hypertrophy that bad boy and, you know, mm-hmm. literally eat, and eat like a tyrannosaur, you know, <laughs> just gorge. Um, well, I don't think anyone of us have seen a very large mammal who hasn't eaten a lot of food at one point. Yes, they – yeah. You may have to cut down and hit a weight class or a show or all that stuff. But if you're looking at complete off-season, I I can't even almost think of a single exception, really. No. Yeah. Like the, the person that accidentally got too big, it doesn't happen. Right. right. <laughs> we were talking about this in the gym the other day. It's like, I'm waiting for that person to come in here. Right. Oops. Oh, my Oops, God. I'm I actually, huge. You made me too jacked. <laughs> Damn you, Phil. Damn you. <laughs> But oh, another one that I think of Big Eats is like, I remember uh, the first Olympia I went to. It's like you could tell who wasn't in this show anymore because <laughs> they'd be in the buffet and just yeah. have, like, they had someone bringing them plates and they were just never ending mashing oh, these yeah. plates down. And it's like, oh, he's out. <laughs> like assembly line. Yeah. Yeah. I bet a lot of our lifters, uh, the guys and the girls, you know, who give themselves permission to get big, um, you can really train yourself to eat an enormous, copious amount of food at once. Uh, I actually have to watch that because I can, uh, I can still really eat pretty well. I mean, maybe not Gary Stridham, you know, pantheon of the gods eat, but uh, I remember I went out for a job interview once, just kind of exploring this situation in Phoenix. And he's, it's, it's when Chipotle was getting big. And he's like, oh, these Chipotle burritos are delicious and they're really big. I said, give me two with double meat, you know, and I just uh, inhaled them. And he's looking at me like, what the fuck, you know, and that kind of stuff. And the, the risk, though, is right for all of us is I think you have to be cautious is if you, you, you get old enough, like my joints are nagging at me and stuff. I have to be careful. I got to turn that off a little bit or I'm just going to be a beanbag chair, you know. <laughs> But yeah, you yeah, can I definitely. Remember when I worked in the medical device industry, especially when I was trying to, you know, out of college the first time and trying to specifically gain more weight again, and I didn't even ask anyone if you could eat in meetings because I had meetings and stuff going all the time. So I just figured if anybody said anything, I'll just apologize later. So I just started eating in like all the meetings because it was, you know, when I was supposed to eat, and yeah. it was, it just became a norm after a while. And one time I didn't eat in one of the meetings, and like three people after the meeting came up to me. Are you not feeling good? Are you are you kind of sick? What's going on? I said, No, I'm all right. They're like, But you weren't eating in the meeting again. <laughs> <laughs> you actually weren't eating. Something's wrong. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I I would love to hear stories from listeners on the Facebook page. You know about just di- doing serious damage. You know, getting chased out of a buffet by an angry owner <laughs> <laughs> or something. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. Another tip I give people, too, that I stole from John Berardi is if, if they're in a working environment, like if you're trying to eat six times a day in a fair amount of food, that, that can be kind of a, a, 
a pain, right? Oh, for sure. So yeah. he's like, well, I don't want to eat in these meetings. They're going to say something weird to me. And I'm like, if they say anything, just say that I have a metabolic disorder and I prefer not to talk about it. And I got that from John Berardi. <laughs> and I, I did that to someone once when I first started doing it. And I, I did it kind of more as a, as a joke. And they were like, we're totally they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I, did, I didn't mean to offend you. It's totally fine. Backpedal. <laughs> Backpedal on you. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. No, it's fine. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, yeah, medical excuse. That's funny. <laughs> you know, last week I there's a local restaurant, and they sell something called the ginormous pancake platter or whatever. And these are like, I don't know, 14 inch. These are, these are big pancakes, and they're multi-grain, real thick, and – you can buy one or two, and you know, the lady's like, "Are you sure you want two? I said, "Give me two and some bacon and a half a dozen eggs." <laughs> and then she's like, <laughs> "What?" And that kind of, but I, you know, you get used to doing that, and and mm-hmm. it can be fun when it's isolated like that. It's not fun, you know, like what Phil has it's to do old. to get up to two ninety. That's expensive. Not and expensive, right? No <laughs> doubt, no doubt. Um, what about uh, competitive? Phil, if you say, well, let's say you want to be competitive relative to your cohort or whatever, mm-hmm. what makes you think, what, you know, listen, this guy's competitive? Ah, Jeez. Is it with yourself? That's you know what I mean? Um, with others? No, um, I mean, I think if you're a competitive lifter, it means you're starting to get towards national level. I mean, in my mind, that's that's you're fairly high, you know. Okay. Now, and I, I push people to like, not even worry about that at the beginning. It's like, don't even worry about it. You know, you need to start beating yourself. Well, you're competitive once you're starting to actually think about breaking real records. <laughs> you know, or you can go, you can compete with that group of people and not look like a fool. Yes. You know, when you can go to yep. these invite-only meets and things like that, you're a competitive lifter now. Yeah. Um, and before that, you don't even worry about it. Like I had this conversation yesterday with the lifter about like weight classes and, well, should I cut? Should I do this? That no, you don't. You, there's no reason for in my mind for any lifter to be cutting until you're you're looking at real records. And I'm not not talking the new ones that are like, I'm the Shawnee County record holder. Yeah, there's nobody in it. You know? Right, right. That's a no one. Or these joke state records now. Like they create new categories and oh, I'm a state record holder in the 16 to 12. You know. With, 108 pound blonde haired class <laughs> right yeah, it's, yeah you know you start getting national record and you know you start getting up towards you know top 20 in your weight class in the world things like that you're competitive right so, yeah but by by almost any standard right yeah. you're, you're strong yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, like, I, mean, I like i like that yeah yeah and i mean below that it's like you won't look like a fool <laughs> you know like I was talking to my a lot of my new guys, it was like making them realize I have a guy that's my age. So he's forty three. He's doing his first meet and he's squatting. What did he do yesterday? Three seventy five for a triple. And uh, and I'm like, you have what you have to realize is we live in this bubble. And I was like, you just squatted more than ninety percent of people your age. Like we don't know people we went to high school with. Yeah. I mean, we went to high school together. Just walk in here and do that. I said, yeah. you're stronger than most everybody. Yeah. You're not you're not a high level lifter, but as far as the world goes, you know, right. you're a, you're strong. So very much. Uh, when I competed, I I thought the same thing that you just said is <laughs> I want to go in there and not basically embarrass myself, 
right? Yeah. So in a lineup at a national qualifier, not national event, a national qualifier, that's different. Mm-hmm. I could never compete in a national event. Those yeah. guys are, you know, skin like pink cellophane. Uh, but, yeah, if I could get in a lineup of about 20 guys and be – you always know in bodybuilding when you're being called out. You know, like if they say – Five, these five people, these five guys, they keep comparing you to each other. You're like, okay, I'm in the money here, right? I'm competitive. Um, and everybody in those open competitions bring lots of different things to the table, you know, so you just want to not embarrass yourself. You're big enough yeah. and lean enough. You got striations in the right place. You know, you're at the, near the top of your weight class. You know, you're getting selected out of a group of maybe 20, 25 people, uh, and you're in the top three or four. That, by definition, to me, is competitive. Like, I, yes. I just didn't want to embarrass myself. And, you know, when you yep. do that, you take a, a long time off, five years off, that kind of stuff, to try to build up and actually change and present something different. That, that's a, that takes a fair amount of courage. Like, you don't know mm-hmm. what's really progressed in the sport, and then am I going to embarrass myself or not, you know, kind of thing. So um, what about you, Mike? What's competitive in your mind? I guess the competitive I always think of, like Phil was saying, and you guys too, is that you're you're up near the the top. You may not be the the, the top, but you're you know doing you know national or world type events against other people that are similar, uh, which I don't think should dissuade people from you know trying to get there or doing other type of contests. But I think having a very healthy perspective of how you rank is also useful <laughs> mm-hmm. you know like i mean for myself i mean i've done a bunch of different grip competitions uh, mostly because they were easy when i was here in minnesota and i've done a few other ones i wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination i'm very competitive in that sport because the people i know and hang out with when i can are you know the the top people literally in the world <laughs> so me comparing, you know, my list to them, it's like, oh, God, I'm not even really in the same ballpark, you know. But you start getting into weird esoteric sports. There's only a, a handful of people who really do them anyway. So everyone is, like, super nice and, like, super, like, oh, yeah, just come on, just come lift with us. And they don't, on a day-by-day level, they don't really care where you're at. They're just excited that you're interested in the same thing they are, you mm-hmm. know. So I think it shouldn't dissuade people from moving in that direction per se because you know, most of all the the top people in any lifting type thing I've met are super nice so like when I was doing strongman stuff like some of the local competitors competed you know on the world level the 175 range it's like yeah yeah just come on out to my place we'll just do some lifting you know super super helpful you know so yep it's a good point about like almost the mindset going in. Like there are some things where maybe you're just competing against yourself because you need to get back mm-hmm. into yeah. it, or it's a side sport for you. It's not your main yeah. gig, you know. Yeah, and that's kind of di- like Phil. What about you tomorrow? You're going to start restart, you know, something. <laughs> what, I'm going to get your... my butt handed to me, um, <laughs> and I, I know this. And the fun thing is, I've been talking trash like all for a month. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to do so well, and right. I know I'm going to get my butt handed to me. Right. Um, <laughs> And I'm okay with it. Literally, I, this is my secondary sport. I'm exactly. going to go out there and have fun. Yeah. And it's supposed to rain a lot today, and I hope it's a really muddy field because that's <laughs> that's like an equalizer. Because, because I'll I'll be the strongest or one of the strongest guys out there. And when you put technique on mud, it goes to hell. 
So, <laughs> uh, but no, I won't be. I mean, I won't look like a fool. I've done it enough, and even though it's been five years, uh, I've done it enough that I'll be able to go out there and, and yeah. do okay and not look like an idiot. Yeah. Um. So, and but part I'm just of that. You know, I think part of that also is knowing the conventions and the traditions of what you're doing and stuff, too. You know, like uh, like in bodybuilding, going out in the completely inappropriate trunks, you know, yeah. or um, like you, like if you're warming up, the etiquette in backstage or, uh, you know, off the platform in, in power. Like, are you comfortable enough to know what you're doing? That's kind of part of it, too, I yeah. think. You know? Yeah, I think it is, too. Yeah, and I can go out there. I can go on any Highland Games field and just go out and have fun. And the good thing for me, like this is my secondary sport. I don't take it, I don't take it nearly as serious. Like I, I should have been practicing the last three months and I haven't. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, yeah. And I would not do that for a powerlifting meet. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, I have one more word, uh, Mike. Let's start with you. Um, what about successful? I mean, specifically in different kinds of strength and muscle sports. Or, you know, the strength fitness industry. Um, what are some of the ways you might define success for yourself? Or, you know, you look at someone else and be like, wow, you know, she's really successful. Yeah, I would say at the industry level for me, I think, is success. I think of impact and freedom. Right? So if I'm able to impact more people by what the things that I'm doing, I think that's going to be a marker of success. And if I can kind of do it on my own terms while doing the other things that I also want to do, uh, to me, I define that as success. From, I'd say, more the lifting side, I think it's it's just what what's going to make you feel better, right? Like, so I have some guys that come up to me and they're like, hey, I want to... I want to deadlift 400 pounds. Like, all right, that's cool. Where are you at now? He's like, oh, I got, you know, 365 for a single. All right, cool. My next question then is going to be, do you want to deadlift 400 or do you want to deadlift 405? Because 405 is four of the large plates on a bar. And most of the time they're like, oh, yeah, 405. Right? So you can argue there's only a five-pound difference. I said, and if they're not sure, I'm like, which one would you feel better having accomplished? You know, and so that gives them kind of a marker of what, they feel as successful. Um, even for myself, like, you know, at some point I'll be able to lift the inch dumbbell and, you know, do the Dimmy Stones in Scotland. 99.9% of people, even in string sports, don't even know what the hell those two are. And I already know by the time that I do it, it'll probably not be that eventful, and that's perfectly fine, right? Because it's just something I said that I want to achieve this thing kind of independent of what anybody else really thinks of it. And to me, I think that's more of a successful goal of being able to do whatever it is that just makes you want to do it, not necessarily for what other people think you should be doing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Phil? For me, for me on a pure lifting, like, like pure strength coach, coach aspect, it's, you know, you've got lifters that are competitive. You know, you've brought up a class of lifters that are now in that national and world level, you know, and or, you know, you're getting kids and they're getting scholarships and things like that. You've helped kids that are now moving on to D1 schools and things like that. Um, and then on the other side of it, it's like, you know, on the non-competitive athlete end, you know, you help people 
I can't tell you how many people I've cured of like type two diabetes and things like that. It successfully made their life incrementally better. I mean, just huge steps. And so, I mean, that type of thing, it's, it's not monetary really. That just comes with it. And, uh, when, I don't know, you're a successful strength coach when, when you've got some lifters in your fold and now people are looking for you, you're not looking for them. <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're being sought out and not vice versa. Like I'm not begging for people and not advertising anymore. They're they're finding me. So, uh, you know, that was that was my success there and it's personally. It, it, and then that's just in that part of the field. You know, as as a strength coach, I think that's what is successful. Now as a businessman, things like that I could give you separate uh definitions, but right, we'll stick yeah. with that one. Yeah, the fitness industry and all that. Yeah. yeah. What about for yourself, Bonnie? Well, I agree with what you said a lot, Mike. I, I'm I'm driven by two things. I think uh, as far as reaching for success, one is Im- impact. Like what yeah. what's the impact mm-hmm. factor of what you're doing uh, yeah. to improve people's lives? Sort of to Phil's point. Mm-hmm. The other is uh, I do a lot of things for my own satisfaction. You know, um, I was watching yeah. a documentary and Tolkien was talking about that. You know, and because of course. When he was, I'm sure, at some point in his career, he's writing this fantasy stuff, creating this new genre of literature, and people are like, "What are you doing?" You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and he's like, "Well, I I, I write this for my own satisfaction, and yeah. I do a lot of that. I'll do quite a bit of research and that sort of thing. I'll go present it, understand it, and kind of move on. You know, rather yeah. than and Mike, you know what this is like, going back and forth with." bandying crooked words with a reviewer for nine months it's like well I, oh i'm not going to really i'm not this isn't going to be highly impactful even even when compared to something like iron radio to be honest yeah. you know yeah. you can reach more people and do some good and and have that impact but yeah impact and and uh, just personal satisfaction my own satisfaction yeah. i'm 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 pretty good with that that's successful yeah yep okay well, good stuff. Uh, we could put that topic to bed. Then we got through but my whole list of words. There you go. Uh, that was a fun one. Yep. Yeah, it's fun to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, okay. Well, we will catch up with everybody next week. Uh, and until then, you know, big lifts. Yep. Have a good one, guys. Sounds good. See you, guys. Right, got to roll. See you later. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. 
the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.